You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Visit bpn.fm to discover more. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at chumpacasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say. Your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Hi, I'm John Benjamin Hickey, and you're listening to And the Tony Goes To. It's a look back at Broadway's most magical night, and all of the winners reminisce with delight. With their talent and brilliance, they always impress, and the Tony goes to my special guest. Have you ever dreamed of winning a Tony Award? Did you ever practice your Tony acceptance speech in the bathroom mirror? Did you grow up watching the Tony Awards every year? Do you have a collection of Tony Award shows on VHS tape that you refuse to throw out? Well, then this is the podcast for you. Every week, I interview your favorite Tony Award winners, and together we go down memory lane as my guests share intimate and never-before-shared details about their Tony experience. By the end of every episode, you're going to feel like you just won a Tony. Welcome to And the Tony Goes To. I'm your host, Ilana Levine. Welcome today's Tony winner, John Benjamin Hickey. And the American Theater Wing Tony goes to John Benjamin Hickey and the Normal Heart. Um, thank you so much. This is such an uh, amazing honor. Thank you, American Theater Wing and the Broadway League. Um, to be included on a list with these other actors is, and to be a part of this season in New York is such an incredible honor. Being a member of the ensemble of The Normal Heart has been the greatest privilege, proudest moment of my career. We, we love this play. We love doing this play. We love supporting the mighty, mighty Joe Mantello. And uh, this is for all of us. Um, thank you, Joel Gray, for bringing me on board and knowing that the time was now. Thank you, uh, George C. Wolfe, for ever so gently taking us all by the throat and dropping us into the mouth of the cannon. Thank you, Daryl Roth, for making it all possible. Wendy Orsha and Jeff Wilson, Heidi and Ron, everyone at 101. Thank you to the aptly named Tim Sage and everyone at Paradigm. Uh, thank you, Laura Linney and Michael Engler and everyone at the Big C who all got me to the stage door on time every night. I so appreciate it. Uh, thank you to Lorita Hickey, my mother, and my family in Plano, Texas. You better not be watching the Mavericks game. Um, <laughs> thank you to all of my friends who are here and who are in here. Um, thank you to my wise and my wonderful and my exceedingly patient Jeffrey Richmond, my partner. Um, but mainly, thank you to Larry Kramer, the great badass of the American theater. John Benjamin Hickey. Hi, Alana. Wow. 
Do you want to say anything? I want to say, I'm sure others might have said this. That's the first time I, uh, I have heard that. The only other way I've heard that is Laura Linney was in Connecticut watching it that night with two of my oldest friends from Texas. And she, instead of filming the camera, she turned the camera around and filmed them react to my win and speech. So that's the only way I've ever, I've ever uh, heard or seen it. Um, wow, it really does take me back. And it made me uh, incredibly proud and also made me a little bit want to throw up. What What is it like... If you can recall the moment you heard your name, like just take me through from your beautiful face sitting in the audience and somehow you had to get your body onto that stage. Can you kind of walk me through what that was? Well, in my case, you know, you really do want to win. I mean, nobody, you know, there's <laughs> a few very, very, you know, saintly people who don't really care about that but if you're if your name is in that mix you of course want to win and i did want to win and i kind of heard i'd not been you know reading any papers or doing anything i was working a whole lot of the time we were doing the play and i was also shooting the big c so i really stayed away from all the the handicapping for fear of reading something good or something bad but i had an uh, uh like People had said, oh, this might happen for you. And and I wanted it. And then I got there and I sat down in the theater and I was sitting right behind Al Pacino. And my first thought was like, I can't win an award in front of Al Pacino. <laughs> he doesn't want to hear me give a speech. Um, and, uh, and, my, and I really was like, oh my God, please call anybody's name but my own. I got really nervous and I'd taken a beta blocker and everything. And my partner turned to me and said, are you okay? <laughs> because I think I'd, I'd gone very white. Um, yes. And then Vi da- Viola Davis came out, and she's an old friend of mine and, of course, somebody I love and admire so much. And I was like, oh, okay, well, that would be cool if she called my name. And then she did. And, uh, and I was prepared. You know, I had a little – at least I had the names of the people I wanted to thank, but my – a regret is, is that I handed, I said to Vi, I don't think I would have said this to anybody I didn't know. Um, like if Julie Andrews was giving me the Tony, I wouldn't have said to her, will you hold my Tony while I give my speech? Uh, and, and I wish I'd been holding the Tony as I gave that speech. But, you know, once I got up there, I had prepared enough to where I didn't, com- I wouldn't and didn't completely fall apart. Because so many people I know who have won over the years have said, had said to me, you're going to get up there and you're going to completely lose your shit. So have it together as best you can. And they were right. I feel like when I watched the the speech recently, it was like a speech written on something the size of a postage stamp. Like you had the tiniest little piece of paper. I had like an index card. That's all I had. And I just had like people's names, like, you know, the producer's name and, and then Joel Gray's name and George Wolf's name and just to kind of gave myself like road marks, you know. And yeah. then when it was the uh, evening was over, I was leaving the theater and somebody who was sitting next to me, not Al Pacino, but somebody who was sitting right near me came up to me and said, you left this on the floor under your seat. And it was that index card. 
Um, so I'm glad they returned it to me. I, I hope I still have it somewhere. Oh, I feel like it should be framed like in your bathroom. Exactly, exactly. Got to do that. Tell me what uh, playing Felix Turner meant to you. Well, I mean, you know, we're having this conversation. I'm not sure when it will air, but we're. It's okay to say that we're having this conversation the day after we received the news that we we lost Larry Kramer. And I, I really thought, even in the world that we're living in right now. I really was so profoundly shocked because I, I seriously thought nothing would ever get him. I just mm-hmm. thought he was one of those people who would never die. You know, I think so many of us felt that way. Like nothing will get that guy. Um, death is not good enough for him. Uh, and, uh, or he's too good for death. You know what I mean? Um, so, so, Losing him yesterday has made me reflect on that play and getting to play that part. And I've been texting with Patrick Breen and Lee Pace and Joe Mantello and Ellen Barkin and a lot of the cast. And all of us were saying, like, it was a perfect experience doing that play at that time with that group of people and having Larry be so omnipresent and being outside the theater every night, handing out flyers about where we are in the fight against this epidemic, this calamity, this pandemic, was just, it was like Lee Pace wrote me back and said, it was the perfect experience. And, you know, it's so weird because when I say to people that that was the most fun and the best time I've ever had in the theater, and they're like, oh yeah, well that's, yeah, you won the Tony for that. And I was like, God, that's so outside of the, when I think of it, I don't think of that. That's not, you know, that has... As much as I loved getting that honor, you know, it kind of had nothing to do. It had nothing on getting to do that play. Um, and I think we all felt that way. So it was it was the ride of a lifetime and it was the role of a, a lifetime. I had such a great, uh, amazing and, and tragic journey in that play that getting to do that every night, weird, it's weird to say this, but it was so much fun. It was so much fun to get to be in such a sad play. Um, well, I had the privilege of being at the original reading that Joel Gray directed, which was a fundraiser. Um, right. Talk about that reading and then how that reading turned into the production, which literally felt like to those of us who are friends with you, like a second later. Like I felt like I saw yeah. the reading and then I was at your opening night with no time in between, which certainly. isn't literally true, but almost true. Yeah, it certainly felt that way doing it in in. And my memory, that's it completely, it's all been conflated into one kind of very, very hot, you know, moment in time. Yeah, yeah. And so quickly, uh, you know, I'm not really right for that part on paper. He's like a, you know, Felix Turner is like a young, stylish, maybe I'm stylish, um, and I'm, you know, uh, whatever they, they, he's a lot of the ways they describe him at, in that play, I did not feel that uh, that's who I was. But well, just, who did you see when you say that, or when you read the character description? Like, cast it for me. What oh, what did you envision in your head? Well, D. W. Moffat, who's an old friend of mine and a great great actor, and uh, he played it originally in eighty four or five at the Public with Brad Davis and. He was Felix, and he was in his late 20s then. It's always been played. 
as someone in their late twenties, Matt Bomer played it brilliantly in the movie. Oh God, I, I thought he was just amazing in the movie. And you know, Matt is like a, a matinee idol. He, he's so he's so gorgeous and and so gifted. So I felt like a like oh, you're kind of asking a character actor to play this mm-hmm. part. But it was I think that was I don't want to take any credit away from Joel because I think it was partly Joel's idea as well. But I think it was Joe Mantello who's an old friend of mine, ours, and had directed me in Love, Valor, Compassion many, many years before and other plays, a play with Viola Davis. Um, And he was like, I'm going to do this reading of The Normal Heart. Uh, Joel asked me to do it. And Joel Joel had basically really stopped acting. I mean, he hadn't done anything since Angels in America. And he said, "Uh, I think you should do Felix with me. I, I, I don't even know if you're that right for it, but I think we would have a lot of fun being um, partners in that. And one of the things that I thought we could bring to it, and hopefully we did, was there was a chemistry between me and Joe, just being old friends. And they seemed like partners the way we played it. You know, they seemed like they really did belong together. And they were contemporaries and they were uh, equals. Um, I'm patting myself on the back by saying I'm equal to Joe in acting because he's such a great, great actor. But you know what I mean? We're just as far as this being the same age, we were contemporaries. And so we did the reading and it went really well. And then, I don't know, it was like within the next six months, Daryl Roth uh, wanted to produce it just as a very small kind of almost concert-like experience for the audience, I mean, I, I, sort, I think we sort of saw it like maybe like the vagina monologues, you know, like we'd all be on concert stands with scripts and people would be able to kind of rotate. Like I was shooting the big C at the time, so I might only have been able to do two or three nights a week. So they right. hired an alternate actor, uh, Wayne Wilcox, to not as an understudy, but as a as an alternate Felix. But very quickly, once we started rehearsing, and we only had 10 days rehearsal with George Wolf, Joel wasn't available at that time because he was doing Anything Goes, uh, it very quick, quickly became aware to all of us that, oh, this is not just going to be a reading. This is going to turn into a production because it's it just so grabbed you by the throat, that play, that it was impossible not to fully invest in it. So, that's so, so can you explain that a little bit? Meaning when you first started uh, you you described the idea of it sort of love loss and what I wore or some version yeah. of different actors coming in and out. Um, was that going to be on a Broadway stage originally? Was that always the location yeah. for it? It was always the intention and the destination was Broadway. And right. Daryl Roth, wonderfully intrepid Daryl, had, had uh, raised the money. And I think everybody signed on knowing that it was going to be maybe a rotating cast, maybe, maybe um, you know, not off book, holding holding books and music stands, and then a couple of us, and I think I might have been, I might have been one of them, came to it and very quickly were off book. And I think uh-huh. Patrick Breen was coming from L.A. and he didn't really know that. He really thought it was going to be a music stand situation. And the, after the first two days of rehearsal, he was like. Holy shit! You, you guys, <laughs> I gotta get my shit together right now. And Joe, I would walk home uh, from Eight Ninety Studios to to the West Village every night with Joe and Ellen Barkin. And Joe was like, "Well, you guys might be off book, but I'm not going to be off book. 
So I'm just letting you know that when we go in front of an audience for the very first time, I will be holding the script because there's no way I can learn all this. And, you know, not so slowly, but very, very surely, Joe was off book just a few days later. It really was that kind of a thing. And at the end of every either day or every other day, George would make us sit in a circle, just chair in chairs in a circle and read and say the play to each other. And, and we just, you know, we just learned it. So it turned from one thing into another very, very quickly. Cause as I said, there was only 10 days of rehearsal and almost imperceptibly. Like, I think if you had told us that this is the way it was going to be, we all would have fucking freaked out. You know, we would have just freaked out. But so does so slowly does furniture appear one day in the rehearsal studio? I mean, it was a very um, uh, sparse and spare yeah. and beautiful set, um, and all the names on the walls. I mean, it was it was haunting in in its originality and beauty in terms of the design concept. Um, but how did you suddenly slip into blocking? and fully realizing this production and what happened to Wayne? Uh, we, I remember furniture really didn't completely appear until we got into Tex at the golden on Broadway. And, and there was only two days of Tex, by the way, usually for a, a straight play, there's at least a week of Tex. Yes. Um, and, and there was only two days of Tex. So it really was like Williamstown. It was like, it was like summer stock. Um, I remember Mike Nichols ran into Joe very late in our run, like in the last week or so of our run. Our run, and and he said to Joe, "Was like, is it falling apart yet?" And Mike had seen it and loved it so much. And and Joe was like, "Yeah, I think we're all starting to wobble a little bit and losing our lines." And Mike said, "That's the that's the downside of not rehearsing for three weeks or four weeks." Huh. So, you get shot out of a cannon and that adrenaline feels great and seems like, oh, look at this. We really don't need that rehearsal. But what you're missing is like a really sound foundation, you know, a structure, which I, I just thought was really interesting. Yeah. I'm not advocating only 10 days of rehearsal. It's right. Terrifying. Um, but uh, we, we started to see that it was a, like you said, a very sparse thing, but there were chairs and there was a desk and there was a hospital bed. Um, uh, or a gurney at one point. I, I At the end, it was George's idea that there was no bed for me to die in, that I was going to die standing up. And I was like, okay, well, we'll see how that happens. And, work. <laughs> and as far as Wayne Wilcox, who's such a wonderful actor, I mean, you know, I think it was a little bit of a bummer because he was like, God, those guys, the big C are really letting you come to work every night. Yeah. I know, dude. I'm sorry, but I was also in a position where I was like, I'm not missing one moment of this. I, 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 and Laura Linney was my champion. I mean, Laura, who of course, you know, her life is the theater, was like, we're going to make this happen for you. And and I, there were nights where I would get on a train in Stamford, Connecticut, where they were filming that at six thirty, six fifteen, and be at Grand Central at seven twenty four or five, and have to basically run to the theater because you can't get a cab and you couldn't, you know, take the, the, uh, shuttle. Um, I would just get, get to the theater at like seven thirty four, and I was on stage at seven forty. That Crazy. sounds so stressful. 
Yeah, it was really stressful. It only happened a couple of times. I mean, I've made it a little apocryphal. I'm now, you know, Elaine Stritch has that story where she was in New Haven in New York, where she was understudying Ethel Merman. I've turned it into that for myself a bit. <laughs> uh, but it was, I only, that only happened to me a couple of times. Okay, it didn't actually happen, but it could have happened. Yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at ChumpaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. So then you guys are, are in, the, in the presence of. Of the great Larry Kramer. And I wonder, you know, all of us who got to see the show got to really experience him uh, standing outside the theater, as you, you know, talked about earlier. But yeah. what was it like? Was he in the room with you guys? Well, I I, I, I can say, I was going to say, I can say this now that he's gone, but I, I would have said it. I mean, we, we'd laugh about it. You know, Larry is a very famous uh, agoraphobe. Um, uh, is agoraphobe fear of heights? Yeah, right? Agoraphobe. I think agoraphobic is fear of heights. Yes? Mm. I think that's fear of being out in the outdoors. Out the outdoors, yeah. Um, uh, so Larry had, was afraid of heights. Yeah, he had agoraphobia and he had, uh, and he had fear of heights. Um, and so we rehearsed on the fifth floor of 890. So Larry won't go above the third or fourth floor. Um, so we didn't have them in rehearsal and I don't think that was by design, but I think we felt some sense of relief that we were getting to kind of do it. You'd never want the playwright around 24 seven, you know, especially when it's somebody as formidable and as scary as, as Larry could be. Um, so we rehearsed it without him. And then once we got into the theater, he was there, uh, so much of the time and was so, uh, Oh, he was just amazing because he was loving what he was seeing. He loved the company and he loved getting to see his play go to Broadway. I mean, think about it. You know, his this play, which was this masterwork and a play that was defined uh, a kind of a generation, um, had never had never had anything but an off-Broadway success. Right. And, you know, this was this was. After the, all that talk, you know, for many years, I don't know if you remember, all through the 90s, there was talk of Barbara Streisand was going to direct uh, a movie of it. And it's and it's all fell apart. And um, so I think Larry thought, well, that this play will I will never see this play have that kind of success in my lifetime. And not only did he see this Broadway revival be so successful, he got to see that wonderful movie. Um, so Agrophobia. 
Agrophobia. Ag- Agro, yeah, okay. yeah, I think it's acro. Anyway. Yeah, yeah. I knew it was close to that, but I also knew I was wrong. Um, and that's what I love about you. Yeah, you will yeah. admit it. You will I, admit when you're wrong. I get close to it, but don't. Um, <laughs> I, uh, so, yeah, he, it was amazing to have him there. And then, of course, once previews started, and none of us knew that Larry was going to do that. It's just uh, we would talk to people who saw the show the night before, and and people would start talking about the fact that, you know, when I left the theater, Larry was standing outside handing out flyers um, about where we are in the fight uh, of, the, of this plague. And it, it was like this, well, again, I'm trying to look for the right word, meta, whatever the thing was, like you saw this play about this character who was, you know, a Cassandra, like standing on top of a mountaintop, screaming his lungs out. And then you left the theater and there he, there was the real thing. Yes. You know, I mean, it was just a crazy, uh, a crazy thing for the audience to experience. And, and as if you didn't already go through enough watching that extraordinary play, you, (laughs) you walked outside and there it was there. The real thing was crazy. Well, what was incredible of, about that moment is, as an audience member, you sort of felt slightly. I mean, you've been through something, and then very satisfied with yourself for having seen this play. Yeah. And then yeah. you got outside, and this person was saying, "Don't be complacent. It's not enough to see my play. This is still happening." Yeah. And yeah. so he turned theater audiences into activists in that yeah, moment. Yeah, and it yeah. was, and it was such an extraordinary thing, which was, it's not enough to see other people talking about it. You must still fight the fight. And it was, I mean, it was a little like getting splashed in the face with really cold water right yeah. after coming at, you know, you're sobbing. None yeah. of us could get out of our seats for a long time. And I want to know what that was like to be doing, you know, to come out for a bow to an audience that, you know, could not move because they were so deeply, deeply shook and saddened and uh, and blown away by by the performances that felt so real. It felt like watching a documentary. It was an extraordinary thing to yeah. behold. It, it it really it really was. It was such a, an amazing thing to be a part of that as well. And I just want to say that you articulated that thing about Larry and what he was doing afterwards. Uh, so eloquently because Larry, who had a massive ego and loved being, and it was the most stylish human being I've ever been around. So incredibly chic and, and it was like a movie star. So it's yeah. not like he didn't like the attention, uh, Correct. he loved the attention, but it wasn't about him going out. It wasn't about him standing out there. So you could tell him how great his play was. It was about him telling you what you now can do. You know, so that that was that was Larry in a, in a nutshell. It was like, you know, both of those things at the same time. Um, doing that play and listening to an audience collectively, you know, fall apart. Um, it, it was it was really incredible. You know, it was thirty years after we had been through it, um, and there were so many young people who hadn't been through it. So it was like this extraordinary history lesson for them. And for those of us who had, it was like there was just something about the time. The time was right to unlock that 
that, you know, that incredibly stored away, padlocked box of grief and emotion. And you could really feel it, you know, about halfway through the play is when everything starts to really fall apart. I mean, the thing you don't realize about the normal heart is it's really, really funny. And the character of Ned Weeks, the Larry character, is a real asshole, and 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 is like a something out of like a Jacobean tragedy or a, 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 a comedy. He's so hilarious in his pig-headedness, and then and then you start to see their worlds fall apart, and it it starts. Lee Pace um, played a character who describes uh, he plays Bruce, and he's describing trying to get his lover who's dying on and off of a plane and the kind of the entire plane turns on him and they won't come near him and he starts to shit himself on the plane and mm-hmm. the story i can't even describe it without breaking it it's it's the most horrifying story and lee did it so beautifully and you could hear the audience start to go you could hear them start to lose it and i remember one night there was a woman in the audience who whose sobbing was, it was like a, she started to keen, you know, she really just started and you could hear, it was like, you could hear like she had not gone there since that time. And it yeah. was this thing. And we would all come off stage that night, especially I remember Jim Parsons and Patrick, people came off stage and were just sobbing just like they, they, cause, cause of what you heard happening to the audience so there was that. We got to collectively feel those emotions with the audience. And it also turned us into very big drinkers. <laughs> those of us who weren't already. I mean, and, and also we, we trafficked in a lot of real gallows humor. You know, we weren't afraid of, of, of making fun of ourselves and, <clears throat> and each other. <clears throat> it was the only way you could get through it. And by the end of the run, we there were these wonderful PAs on the show, and we would make like kamikazes or 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 you know uh, very strong cosmopolitans, and they'd just be in shot glasses, and we'd walk off stage and take a shot of of whatever liquor was in store that night, just to kind of like take the edge off. Um, and and that's what I think I mentioned that earlier. It's so it's so weird to say this, but when something is that it's, it was really fun. It was real. I, I've never had more fun doing a play because when you're in something that good, that's having that much of an effect on an audience, it's just a dream come true, isn't it? Yeah. And I mean, honestly, you know, having seen you more recently in The Inheritance, it was pretty incredible to be in an audience again, where especially uh, at the end of the first part, um, yeah. really, really felt like that again, this new generation being taught in this very elegant way um, where their freedoms came from, right. how, yeah. how, the, how the war was fought. And uh, it felt like a real tribute and couldn't have happened without the normal heart having yeah. come before, without yeah. Angels yeah. in America. I mean, the things yeah. that had to be yeah. part of the canon of great American plays that yeah. um, honor our our community yeah. in yeah, that exactly. way. Love, valor, compassion. You know, yeah. We just also lost. We've, we are losing real titans. You know, uh, Jerry Herman. It's been yeah. 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 And I think Matthew's play is a beautiful uh, tribute to the to that generation that came before. He's very much his own voice, 
but he is very much on record as saying, I owe everything to Tarantino. I owe everything to Larry King. Um, and I, it's echoed in that play. You can feel that in, in his play. Uh, it has a very generous spirit, um, the inheritance. And was, for me, an extraordinary thing to get to kind of like, oh, oh, wow, I got to be in this generation's version of what my generation has already done. <clears throat> so I felt really lucky. Yeah. Yeah. You, you, well, I don't know if it's lucky. I think this is a career earned with such incredible integrity. And I wonder when you think about Felix Turner, the character that you played and, and the character for which you won your Tony award, uh, do you think about him? I do. Yeah. Like, like, can you just talk a little about that? Yeah. You know, we never knew who he was. Larry would never tell anybody who he actually was. There are a few people that they feel like it was based on. There was a, a, a writer for the Times then who wrote the style section who, I, if I remember this correctly, who was gay, who was closeted, who was not uh, dealing with the situation, you know, because he couldn't, because the Times, could, you, you just didn't write that way back then, you know, 30, 40 short years ago, you couldn't be the style editor of the New York Times and be out, really um, insane. Uh, so, you know, Felix was, all of the other characters in that play are very, very much based on very identifiable real people. Felix was a, he was a real person to Larry, but he was a composite of a lot of people who lived and died in that time. And, um, you know, the fact that Larry, it's, it's an incredibly romantic and heartbreaking play because Larry makes the face of death, the physical, tangible face of death in that play be the thing that he finds so too, almost too late in life, his love, his great love. And they only have a short year together. And, and right. that was just, it was just heartbreaking to, to get to play that person who, who really did seem like uh, he was conjured from Larry's imagination. And that, you know, like I said, I got to, I got to really do a, a, a great journey in that because he starts out the play incredibly robust and full of strength and life. And you, you see that completely, you know, taken away from him. Yeah. That uh, was yeah. amazing. And also, you know, you get to, you get that, there's that amazing scene that where, where uh, Ned throws the, the carton of milk up against the wall and it, and it kind of goes all over. I, my clothes, my shoes smelled like spoiled milk. For the entire last half of the run, nobody would even come near me. Just the just the physical, uh, you know, stuff that you got to go through in that play. It was like it was like getting to be, you know, in a boxing ring. I've never been in a boxing ring, but I would imagine that's what it would be like. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, congratulations. Thank you very much, Alana. You're welcome. I want to ask you uh, a couple of things before we finish, okay? Okay. All right. Who did you bring to the Tonys? My partner, Jeff Richmond, and my agent at the time, uh, Tim Sage. 
What did you wear? I wore a tuxedo by, uh, I think it was by Dolce & Gabbana. And I loved it so much. And I was like, well, I won. Surely they're going to let me keep this thing. And I got a very lovely thing of flowers from the people, the fine folks at Dolce & Gabbana and a card saying, we'll be there to pick up the tuxedo (laughs) tomorrow afternoon at four. And I was like, oh, well. Thanks. Thanks. I'm now Cinderella. Um, Well, it lasted. Oh, well, uh, I'm sure you've had other beautiful tuxedos since, my friend. Um, Where do you keep your beloved Tony? Uh, I keep it in New York in uh, like a a study or guest room, whatever it's called. And it's, uh, you know, sitting right next to my partner, Jeff, uh, wrote Modern Family for many years and Frasier. So he has, God, that guy's got like a shitload of of Emmys. And it's sitting right next to an Emmy. And, you know, an Emmy really looks like it could beat up the Tony Award. It looks like it's going to eat or pierce with one of its long, sharp tongs, the poor little unsuspecting Tony Award. But I say to Jeff all the time, everybody knows it takes about 15 Emmys to make a Tony. So you've got a ways to go before you catch up with me. There you go. John Benjamin Hickey, you are a glorious artist, an incredible friend, and one of the most beloved people in the theater community and beyond. And thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. Thank you. I would say all of those things right back at you. So thank you so much for having me, old friend. You're welcome. Before this episode ends, I just wanted to share with you that John recorded for me and for you to hear the very end of his Tony speech that we didn't play at the beginning of this episode. It is his tribute to the late, great Larry Kramer. So in his own words, here's John Benjamin Hickey sharing the end of his Tony Award speech, the Tony that he won for playing Felix Turner in The Normal Heart. Here's John. But mainly, thank you to Larry Kramer, the great badass of the American theater, whose play 30 years later reminds us that the war is not over. Those of us who are still standing, Larry, can never repay you. Thank you so much. And the Tony Goes To is produced by Alan Seals for the Broadway Podcast Network. The music and lyrics for the theme song were written by Georgia Famusa. Theme song orchestration by Alexander Sage Oyen. Episodes are edited by Derek Gunther. Thank you to Parody Bill for the graphics. And please don't forget to go to the iTunes show page and rate and review the show. Thanks for listening. Excerpt from the Tony Awards used with permission of Tony Awards Productions. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the RISE Theater Directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E.org because only together we rise. Life's better with American Family Insurance. 
because our home policies help protect your dreams and come with peace of mind. Save up to 25% by bundling home, auto, and life. American Family Insurance. Get a quote, find an agent at amfam.com. Products not available in every state. Discounts may not apply to all coverages on an auto or home policy. Discounts do not apply to life insurance policies. Visit Amfem.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating companies, American Family Life Insurance Company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin.